Hello! Welcome, I'm Wilson King, and this is ADD History. Episode 4, Nerd Legend, Ancient Aliens? Right off the bat, I don't know if there's any truth to this at all. If you like your history uncontroversial and accepted by the broad academic community, this one definitely isn't for you. But if you're like me and you love a good weird theory that, if true, would change everything, listen on. This is the strangest story I'm going to tell until we get to the late 1940s. My apologies in advance to the Jews, Christians, Muslims, atheists, scientists, Tom, and possibly Hindus who might find the story very offensive. This is the strange story of the Anunnaki, which means the gods who came from the sky in ancient Sumerian. Supposedly. Shockingly enough, I can't speak or read ancient Sumerian, and even the greatest experts on their language and culture are really grasping at straws to have any idea what was going on with these super-ancient people. It's rather difficult to translate a language that hasn't been spoken or written in around 4,000 years, and back then it was about as relevant as Latin is for the modern people. Sumerian stories have been passed down to become our stories, and they are likely the roots of many ancient religions and legends. To say it another way, their stories are absolutely wild, and can be interpreted in some very interesting ways. The weird story I'm referencing here has to do with that strange word, Anunnaki, which is what they called their ancient gods. As I mentioned earlier, according to some translations of the story, these gods came from the sky, were around 10 feet tall, with elongated heads, and lived for hundreds of thousands of years. Yep, aliens. Picture some of those ancient Egyptian images of little humans worshipping and tending to gods with gigantic elongated heads. It's pretty strange that some of the oldest civilizations on the planet used imagery like this for their gods. Why was there this global obsession with astronomy among ancient cultures? And why did some cultures insist that their gods came from specific stars or constellations like Sirius or Orion? So, I'll begin with some of the background on why I'd even mention such a stereotypically batshit crazy idea in a history show. For starters, it's a fun and interesting story, whether it's true or not. But, in all seriousness, Here's some of my thoughts on how the current and historical existence of aliens might not be that crazy after all. I want to make it clear that I totally disavow that horrible ancient aliens show from the History Channel. It's a soulless cash grab that ran out of stuff to talk about in the first season, then they pumped out 15 more seasons afterwards. I think that show is designed to make this idea look ridiculous, and I don't appreciate it. It's a weird idea, sure, but it doesn't have to be a stupid idea. First off, I do have a bias here. I must admit that I was absolutely obsessed with the ancient astronaut theory for most of my childhood into early adulthood. I was open to the idea that aliens probably exist as a child, and they might have uplifted or even genetically engineered humanity when I was about 10. Around the age of 19, I got into all the conspiracy stuff with a vigor only a curious and unemployed teenager could, and the tip of the pyramid for me was always aliens. No pun intended. I think aliens are probably real. They've probably visited Earth, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if they've been casually involved with Earth for a long time. After all, I would totally stop here on a road trip across infinite dead empty space, right? Now I know more and I wonder a bit less, but if we all found out tomorrow that shape-shifting space reptilians do and always have run the planet, it would barely change my day. 
well, I'd like to think that I'd get a lot of very satisfying calls from old friends. Every ancient alien nerd wants to hear, you were so right when you were ranting about aliens every time we smoked a joint 15 years ago. It's the ultimate present for that person in your life. Anyway, if you think the whole alien subject is nonsense, I'd implore you to spend an hour looking at UFO videos, do some quick math on how much effort people would have to put in to fake all of these videos for generally negative rewards, and then realize that that's only the snowflake on top of the tip of the iceberg on the whole alien topic. And there's crop circles, which, you know, don't even fucking get me started. Then there's like 80 years of people blowing the whistle on the topic who die mysteriously or lose everything shortly after. Next, there's the governments, notably of the United States, that have recently been full-on admitting that they've had alien bodies in tech for most of a century. Sure, the sketchy deep state is probably just telling us that so that we won't pay attention to how they're running the country and or planet into the ground, but for those of us who have been studying the subject for years, they're just finally admitting the obvious. There may be some deeper reason that they have to come clean about it all soon, or they may think that it will further justify their power in a time where people are getting pretty skeptical about whether they should be running things. On that point, this is a subject that is full of myths and disinformation. It's hard to tell if you're reading the meticulous studies of a dedicated translator of ancient text, fudged interpretations of myths by hopeful researchers, or the ramblings of full-on schizophrenics. It has been admitted by the CIA that they put out all sorts of false information on the subject of UFOs and aliens or whatever to cover up whatever other strange shit they were up to. They've had programs to gaslight people into thinking UFOs are nonsense and programs to gaslight people into thinking that Event X was alien so that reasonable people wouldn't pay attention to it. That's a subject for another time, but look into it if you don't believe me. The CIA is, like, comically sketchy. It's a big universe, and just because we don't know how to get there doesn't mean whoever's there can't get here. Yeah, there's definitely some crazy people and bad information in the discussion, but those who are convinced we're the only sentient life in the universe might just not want to think about it. A great physicist, Enrico Fermi, was once chatting with some other great scientists and made the point that in a practically infinite universe, there must be other life, and probably a lot of it. He then said something along the lines of, well, uh, where are they then? This is known as Fermi's Paradox. This basically assumes that if other advanced life exists, we should be picking up their soap operas by now with radio telescopes. He's got a point, but it's worth noting that this idea makes two pretty big assumptions. One is that other advanced life would be spraying radio waves everywhere like we do, and that they went down the same technological path that we did. I won't dive into it too deeply, but radio is a stepping stone to more advanced communication tech, and it would be really impractical for communicating at an interstellar scale. Radio is practical on a planet, and it works within a solar system. If you're trying to contact a spaceship that's faster than the speed of light and actually going somewhere outside of your backyard, it's literally a waste of time to use radio. The other assumption is that we would be able to pick up intelligible radio transmissions from civilizations and other star systems, which we really have no evidence of. We don't know what radio transmissions from deep space look like, because we have barely left Earth, and we really didn't go that far. Voyager, the space probe we sent screaming out into space in the 70s, is the farthest man-made thing from home, and it's still in the living room at the scale of space. It sends us kinda functional radio transmissions, which really proves absolutely nothing. As far as we know, a radio broadcast from Earth might look like background radiation by the time it gets to the nearest star, 4.2 years later, 
but it's positive that the signal would be pretty weak by then. At one point recently, they screwed up the point antenna here directions for the Voyager probe, which is running its radio on a solid-state nuclear reactor, by the way, and they lost contact with it for two weeks. Nice job, NASA. Stars put out a lot more energy than even the strongest radio transmission of Yellow Submarine, and maybe you need to sample the local radio station by the time you get to Zeta Reticuli. It's kind of insane to assume we'd be picking up some alien version of pop radio from many light years away, and the fact that we don't is considered one of the strongest arguments that we're alone in the universe. The question is probably not, is there other life in the universe, as much as, could other life get here? I won't subject you to my nerdy explanation of how the theory of relativity and the proof of gravity being a wave means the concept of warp drive from Star Trek is possible. I will say, however, that many advanced civilizations probably don't spend all their effort on making ever more advanced forms of pornography like we do, and there's probably many ways to travel to distant planets if you put your mind to it. In theory, we have thought of at least a couple ways you could get to another star in a timely manner, and we aren't that smart. We were curing diseases with leeches 200 years ago, and 200 years from now it might be obvious that you can travel faster than light, assuming we don't nuke ourselves into the Stone Age before then. So, assuming aliens obviously have to exist somewhere, there's at least a possibility that they could travel here, and there's something like evidence that they do it now, the question is if they did it in the past. Of course, those who go looking for aliens in ancient legends are likely to find them, but that doesn't mean they're right. However, it isn't positive that they're wrong either. Obviously, the respectable scientific establishment denies the whole perspective outright, but what fun is that? Remember that scholars who want to be invited to dinner parties or continue to have an income really have no choice but to agree wholeheartedly that fringe ideas are utter nonsense. For the record, I personally think it's a fascinating theory, and it's possible that parts or even a majority of the story is true. There is some impossible-to-calculate chance that humans were full-on genetically engineered by aliens, which would answer a lot, and our ancient legends called them gods. I honestly can't quantify whether any of that is true or not. It would be one thing if there were only a couple ancient stories that loonies were stretching to fit a narrative about aliens. Then it could be pretty easily dismissed. Unfortunately for the curious mind that loves to try to find the truth about things, there's way too many stories from around the world that are too strange and similar to be a coincidence. A lot of crazy theories are probably false, but at one point the idea that the Earth goes around the sun was a pretty crazy theory. It was such a crazy idea that they killed the guy who suggested it, but 500 years later, it's crazy to believe that the Earth doesn't go around the sun. That point is, you know, low-hanging fruit, but you get the idea. Anyway, aliens probably exist. It's not impossible that some of them can travel the great distance between stars. They could be hopping between dimensions, too, which is a popular theory as well. It's not impossible that intelligent beings from elsewhere visit this planet, and it's not impossible that they've been doing it for a long time, which is what this story is about. Enough with all of that. On with the story. So, one big source for this theory is from the Sumerians. Again, we come to the issue of translation, because translating this language requires a certain amount of interpretation. Where one researcher can see a rather boring story of ancient humans doing strange religious rituals based on crazy made-up stories, others can see perfectly rational human beings worshipping and respecting physical breathing gods that were giving them orders. Supposedly, the word worship originally meant something more along the lines of work for. If that's true, the concept of making sacrifices to the gods might have been more of a de-evolution of people literally giving their gods resources. 
This isn't to say that they were literally gods in the modern sense, but if there were advanced spacefaring civilizations visiting Earth in the ancient past, they would basically appear to be gods from the perspective of early humans that only started to walk on their hind legs pretty recently. If these gods had created or helped humans in some way, it makes even more sense. So the Sumerians believed that there were 12 planets, including the sun and the moon. They somehow nailed all the planets from Mercury to Pluto and said that there was another planet called Nibiru, with a crazy oblong orbit that brought it far out of the solar system for thousands of years at a time. This is where they say the sky gods came from, the planet Nibiru. While there has been some speculation by actual astronomers that there might be a large rocky planet on an eccentric orbit through our solar system, the idea that a planet like that could support life is pretty out there. If there is any actual truth to this story, I personally believe that that is the least likely part of it. But then again, they supposedly knew about Pluto thousands of years before modern science detected it, so who knows, right? To save time, just assume I'm saying supposedly before every statement for quite a while. I'm not saying this is the capital T truth. I'm telling you the story. First, there's the Enuma Elish, which is a Babylonian retelling of the earlier Sumerian story of how the Earth was created. There's lots of discussions of the family of the gods, who are still called the Anunnaki, followed by a painfully long description of a war among them. It doesn't really explicitly state that they created the planet, but it does describe how various gods created what sounded an awful lot like infrastructure after the war concluded. It also casually mentions that they created humans from the blood of one of the gods who lost the war, who were the workers of this infrastructure. The king of the gods assigned 300 gods to the netherworld, whatever they mean by that, and 300 gods to the heavens on what could be interpreted as space stations. Then he ordered the creation of the city of Babylon, which would be the capital of the gods' government on Earth. Here's an interesting part. It describes a college of 50 great gods, and a council of seven gods to make decisions, all balanced with the leadership of the king. Yeah, the political organization of the gods of Babylon had a congress, a council of judges, and an executive branch, much like the three branches of the United States government. Weird, right? I thought so. It's the Enuma Elish. Look it up and read the full translation yourself if you feel like it. Anyway, here is the summary of the Sumerian version of what the Anunnaki gods did on Earth. This is a compilation of a lot of sources on my end. And who knows what the deal was with their sources, so make up your own mind whether any of this is credible. As the story goes, the Anunnaki were led by their king Anu, and his two sons ran the colony on Earth. First was Enki, the firstborn son, born to the wrong mother, which removed him from the line of royal succession. Classic. Enki is often associated with the symbol of two snakes wrapped around a staff, which is now a universal symbol of medicine. That symbol, called the Caduceus, if I'm pronouncing that right, is undeniably ancient, but it does look suspiciously like a strand of DNA. Enki was the head scientist of the Anunnaki organization, and he fits into that lovable mad scientist stereotype. The second was Enlil, whose symbol was the eagle. He was the second son of King Anu, and the next in line for the throne. The story kind of makes Enlil appear to have been kind of a spoiled dickhead with serious anger issues. He had more of that stiff, corporate middle management vibe going on. Anyway, these sky gods were supposedly on Earth to mine gold. They needed the gold to fix holes in their ozone layer back on their home planet. 
Supposedly, modern science believes spraying an aerosol of gold particles around holes in an ozone layer would actually patch them up. That may or may not be true, but every time some ancient alien theorist mentions the Anunnaki fixing their atmosphere with gold, it comes with a claim that modern science has come to the conclusion that that would totally work. Regardless of fixing atmospheres, gold is pretty useful stuff for advanced civilizations, as it is an essential ingredient for high-quality electrical connections, like those in computers, and plenty of other applications that we know of. There are legends that potions can be made with gold as an ingredient that produce almost magical health benefits. Maybe so, maybe not, but if oxygen-breathing aliens wanted to mine gold and other resources, ancient unoccupied Earth would be a pretty perfect place to do it. So, the Anunnaki, who, again, supposedly lived for hundreds of thousands of years, got tired of mining gold themselves after about 100,000 years and went on strike. Enlil was furious, and at something that sounds like a board meeting, he wondered aloud if there wasn't a better way to get the gold. Sheepishly, his brother Enki, the scientist, suggested that primitive humans could do all the gold mining and manual labor if they were a little smarter. The Anunnaki Council debated about whether creating a new species was a good idea. And to worm out of that moral dilemma, they debated about how they defined a new species. They decided that a couple smart genes in the little monkey people wasn't that big of a deal, as long as they couldn't reproduce on their own. It would be just enough to follow orders, but not so much that the new slave race would be a problem. Early human ancestors would be a logical choice for a creature to do all the hard labor, because they already had hands, the ability to vocalize, and were pretty smart relative to other creatures native to Earth. Supposedly, Enki had been screwing around making minotaurs, centaurs, and all sorts of other weird mythological creatures, which is part of mythology from all over the world. Who knows if any of these creatures ever existed, but the Enume Elish and other sources mention the gods creating monsters like the Hydra in a very similar way to Greek mythology. All that's to say, presumably Enki wasn't too worried about the ethics of making primates a little bit smarter. As the story goes, the first human was called Lulu in Sumerian and Adama in Hebrew. Yeah, that sounds a lot like Adam from the biblical creation myth. Again, I'm not making this up, but I can't promise that somebody in my line of sources didn't make it up, because it is awfully on the nose. Anyway, Adama were kind of neither male nor female and couldn't reproduce, much like mules who were a mix between horses and donkeys. The Adama were a great success at doing all of the hard labor in place of the lazy aliens, however, who probably preferred being fanned and fed grapes by these relatively small creatures who revered them as gods. Eventually, it became clear that cloning these Adama, the first model of humans, was a lot of work that the Anunnaki didn't really have to do. They could engineer these Adama to be able to sexually reproduce, but it would be crossing a line that we would recognize in modern scientific ethics, which is the moral minefield of truly creating a new species. As the story tells, after a fight with his brother, Enki secretly altered Adamu again, creating the first woman, by removing genetic material from the rib of Adama. If a genetic scientist is trying to extract genetic material today, the rib marrow is supposedly the best place to get it. Those who are familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden will note that Eve was created by God out of Adam's rib. Yep, this could all be made up after the fact by researchers trying to legitimize their nutty theory on ancient aliens, and I can't confirm or deny it by reading the Sumerian cuneiform tablets myself. Sometimes it's fun to know that you'll never know the truth about something. Regardless, people love to justify strange ideas by pointing at some line in the Bible that seems to go along with it. And there's plenty of really weird lines in that strange and sometimes wonderful book. 
Much of the Sumerian story lines up with the book of Genesis, which could mean somebody made the Sumerian translation fit the biblical story, or the biblical story is a later edited retelling of the Sumerian story. A lot of this is supposedly referenced in the book of Enoch, which was removed from the Bible in the second century. I'll be cracking into the Bible stories in a later episode, which I'm sure won't be controversial at all. Anyway, when Enki, the benevolent mad scientist, changed Adama from a useful experiment to a species that could keep itself going long term, his brother Enlil was, again, angry. These monkey people are going to fill the oceans of the planet with plastic and ruin the atmosphere, he yells. Dad would disown you if he knew about this. To be fair, Enlil might have had a point, but he sounds like kind of a dick, and plenty of the Anunnaki sided with his brother Enki. As the legends go, humans lived a long time then, up to a thousand years or more, and had all sorts of woo-woo telepathic abilities that would make all the people using them as a slave race a little bit nervous. Enki made them a little smarter than he had intended, and the humans, or Adama, that Enki had made were powerful. The Anunnaki worried that humans could rise to challenge the superiority of the Anunnaki one day. Supposedly, he altered their genes again, possibly by inserting some genes from a rhesus monkey to get them to the correct level of stupid. Humans, therefore, did not rise to challenge the gods, and the Adama were treated horribly, much like how modern humans treat pigs or chickens. While there's not much discussion of consent, the gods had a habit of having sex with human women, which seems to have resulted in hybrid children pretty often. That concept is literally everywhere in mythology, at least in the traditions I'm familiar with. Here's an interesting line from the biblical book of Genesis. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. That's Genesis 6 too, the King James Version. While we're on the subject, the Anunnaki may have been called Nephilim in the Bible, and when it says giants in that quote, the original word was Nephilim. More on that later. Anyway, some of these hybrid children were allowed to rule cities, and Enlil was, as usual, very fucking angry. There is some reference of Enlil not being able to get any sleep because the humans were always loudly banging all night. This is supposedly around 13,000 years ago in our timeline, which was right before a cataclysmic event that you'll get really tired of hearing me talk about after the next couple episodes. The Anunnaki were aware that this global disaster was coming, and that it was going to involve an epic flood. They may have also intentionally caused it. Enlil wanted the humans to be wiped out in the flood, so he kept it a secret from them. Now, either Enki loved the humans he had created, or he just wanted to stick it to his chronically angry brother, but he told the human hybrid what was going to happen, and told him to prepare. That human has many names depending on the culture, but there's a version of this story in pretty much every culture. In Sumerian, he was called, uh, Utnapishtim? Utnapishtim. Yeah, that. This character is generally known today as Noah. I'm, I'm gonna call him Noah. Yeah. You're probably at least somewhat aware of the rest of the story because it's possibly the most famous mythological story on Earth. To round out the Anunnaki version of the story of Noah and the Flood, Enki told Noah the details of how to build his ark and told him to put the seed of all living things on the ark, which alludes to genetic samples instead of the ridiculous concept of a floating sex zoo. As a funny detail, Enki gave Noah an excuse to tell his neighbors for why he was building a cruise ship on his lawn, which basically amounted to... I'm going away for business. 
Pretty weak excuse for the giant boat, Noah. But whatever. Anyway, floods, death, global destruction, yada yada yada. And the water receded. Noah beached his ark on top of a mountain, crawled out of his boat, lit a fire, and had what I can only imagine was the most depressing barbecue ever. Maybe he ate the unicorn. The gods, who had been hanging out in orbit on their spaceship, saw the smoke, and therefore Noah. When Enlil found out about the surviving humans, he said something along the lines of, Why won't you die? Enlil then presumably took the alien sky god equivalent of a Xanax and came to a decision. He would let the humans live, but they had to start doing agriculture. That's kind of an odd rule for him to make, but I don't know, maybe he was tired of watching humans hunt the mammoths to extinction with lasers? Who knows what was going on? The survivors of humanity across Earth agreed. There is this odd recurring motif in some of the oldest art in existence, all over the world, of people in strange clothes, which often resemble spacesuits, holding little handbags or briefcases. It's odd because that same image, globally, is associated with these helpful people that came out of nowhere and helped to create or rebuild society. That's basically the first thing I've said in this whole episode that is generally accepted as a historical fact, and I'm going to mention it over and over for the next two episodes. Enjoy that fresh air, because we gotta dive back into this wild story to bring it in for a landing. So, to save time, imagine a montage of sky gods with the mood of parents watching their kids play at the park while rebuilding civilization with the grateful humans. They're putting up giant stone structures in Turkey, rolling some heads down a Mayan pyramid, and playing catch with the Egyptians. The music gets more sentimental, and the scene changes to an Anunnaki building a pagoda in China, like a dad building a model with his son, then another teaching some people he just dropped off in Scotland how to golf. One Anunnaki, who's taken up smoking an earth plant, giggles as people put the 33rd massive statue on Easter Island. The music swells to tear-jerking ecstasy as the spaceship leaves the atmosphere of Earth while smiling humans hug each other and wave from the ground. One ship stops and writes a message in the crop circle alphabet. The message says, When we get back, you better have our gold. The end. Or is it? Well, it's not. The two endings to that story are either that the Anunnaki left Earth long ago for reasons unknown, or that they continue to secretly control the planet to this day. While that's an interesting question to ponder in a hazy college dorm room, it's not one that I will explore here. I mean, if aliens secretly control Earth like humans control a chicken coop, they would have to bribe or threaten the families of everyone that knew the truth to keep it secret, and that's totally unfeasible. Obviously, anyone who blew the whistle on such a world-shattering topic would be listened to with total respect. After all, whistleblowers never have their lives ruined permanently, and people with compromising information on the ruling class never die mysteriously. Then, of course, there's the third option, that aliens have never visited Earth and people who think they have should spend less time on YouTube at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's possible too, but it's less fun. There are, however, a lot of loose ends to tie up before I end this exploration of the ancient astronaut theory, so it's time for the supporting evidence portion of this story. So, did that two godbrothers who didn't get along story sound familiar? If you have any knowledge of ancient religions with many gods, that trope is absolutely everywhere. Thor and Loki, the Nordic gods that are probably the best known because of those blasphemous Marvel movies, were two brothers that didn't get along. Osiris and Set are basically the same two brothers, but they were from the Egyptian tradition. Ra, the father of the gods in Egypt, and Odin, the father of the gods in Scandinavia, were both missing an eye, and pretty much the same fucking character. 
It's not hard to imagine that that was all the same story at some point, whether or not there were aliens involved. Even if all ancient religious stories are completely made up, like it may have been the superhero stories from like Atlantis or whatever, but the story was remembered differently by different cultures over thousands of years of separation. The stories changed in the details here and there, but many stories around the world seem to have a common root at the ancient Sumerian story of Enki and Enlil. It would appear that Enki's character often evolved into the trickster god, and Enlil's character was the prince of the gods. By that logic, Enki is Loki, which is almost the same word, by the way. Enlil would be Thor, and Anu would be Odin. Enki even appears to have possibly become the character of Lucifer, symbolically. Lucifer, which translates to Lightbringer, is not an explicitly evil character per se. He's just an angel who was cast out of the kingdom of God for his disobedience. That's not a pro-Satan statement, by the way. That's just an observation. Satan and Lucifer appear to be different characters, after all. One might wonder at this point, well, wasn't Enki kind of the good guy? Well, from the perspective of humans, he might have been. But if we run on the assumption that Enlil was still in charge after Enki's little stunt with Noah, he probably got some bad press afterwards. Here's a little explanation of the supposed 10,000-year propaganda war against Enki. So, as you may recall from earlier, Enlil was linked to the symbol of the eagle, and Enki was linked to the snake symbolism. For pretty much all of recorded history in the Western tradition, and possibly others, the eagle has been symbolic of power and the good guys, and snakes have been associated with evil and treachery. Snakes have often had associations with paganism, shamanism, and of course, the devil, while the eagle was associated with the nice guys, like the Romans, the Achaemenid Persians, the Egyptians, and many others. If you know anything about these empires, it may be kind of obvious that it would be a stretch to call them the good guys. So, this perspective says that the followers of the snake, in the tradition of Anki, believed in the liberation and enlightenment of mankind, and that they kept the secret wisdom of the ancients safe in secret societies and traditions. Meanwhile, the followers of the eagle, in the traditions of Enlil, preferred to keep humanity ignorant and maintain control over humanity with governments and military power. This concept is referenced in pop culture pretty often if you know what to look for. The Assassin's Creed video games probably make one of the most obvious references to the eternal battle between the snake and the eagle, with the Assassin's faction secretly fighting for human liberation and the Templars maintaining control through force. The series reverses the symbolism, however, as the main characters of the games always had names that often translated to eagle, and tons of the other eagle references connected to the good guys. Nice try, alien propaganda writers. Thousands of years of oral tradition can turn the story of people into symbols, because of that telephone theory I mentioned in the chapter overview episode. In the story of the Garden of Eden, it was a snake that convinced Eve to eat the forbidden apple. While Abrahamic traditions consider this disobedience of God to be a bad thing, one could make the case that the snake was doing humanity a favor. If the story of Enki and Enlil happened, Enki symbolized as a snake made human sentient, and Enlil symbolized as God didn't like that, but also couldn't prevent it. This concept is similar to the Greek story of Prometheus, who gave fire and technology to the humans. He is sometimes said to be the father of the Greek version of Noah and their flood myth, and that he created humans out of clay. His punishment for helping the humans was to be tied to a rock and have his liver eaten by an eagle every day. Worldwide, there are plenty of legends where some powerful being gives wisdom to humanity and is punished for doing so. In Ireland, they celebrate St. Patrick, who chased the snakes out of Ireland. This is a cute story that references the reality of the religious fanatic who violently hunted down the last of the Celtic Druids. 
In Chinese mythology, snake-like dragons aided humanity in many ways, particularly involving a flood, and the feathered serpent in Mayan culture was the benevolent god that gave them civilization. The Mexican flag now depicts an eagle with a snake in its claws. We will be here all day if I get into Egyptian snake symbolism. The point is, Enki and snake symbolism is often connected to enlightenment of ancient humanity. Meanwhile, Enlil and eagle symbolism is often connected to keeping people in their place. Whether or not that's a coincidence is up to you, but it's interesting food for thought. I referenced the Bible a couple times earlier, but there's more on that point in the context of ancient alien theory. Several of the early stories in the Bible use plural terms like we and us when the Lord spoketh. The fact that the Bible was translated and edited many times is not controversial, and I've heard theologians say on several occasions that a lot of the early Bible was likely edited retellings of earlier stories. Many of these stories reference all sorts of things that don't fit neatly into the biblical tradition. The Book of Enoch, which took place before the Flood, was removed completely from the story at some point. Earlier in the Bible, when God is a fairly active character, a lot of his decisions can seem a little bipolar. All that, sacrifice your son to me, then showing up at the last minute to say, don't sacrifice your son, I was just kidding, is all a little nutty. One way to look at that is that it was actually several different beings, and each had their own agendas. As God takes a less active role in the story, it could be the aliens finally deciding to stop openly messing with humans. Then we've all heard a joke or two about Mary getting pregnant with Jesus while still supposedly being a virgin, but assuming it wasn't God, her husband, or the milkman, her story could have been true if it were an alien that artificially inseminated her, or just knocked her up on some spaceship joyride. My apologies for how completely blasphemous that all was, but the idea that some half-alien kid would tell humans to be a little nicer to each other, do a bunch of really nice miracles, and then get nailed to a cross for it might actually sound a little bit more probable to non-Christians. Pick a miracle from the Bible, and people who think it was aliens have some explanation for how that miracle was just alien technology at work. One term ancient alien theorists love from the Bible is Nephilim which is often translated as giants, and sometimes as the fallen ones. If you're looking for aliens in ancient stories, fallen angels, like Lucifer, might just mean they fell from the sky. The Nephilim might just be another word for the Anunnaki, and they are only mentioned a handful of times, generally when they were impregnating human women. Whether you believe the Bible is God's word or a crazy ancient story, it's a strange detail in an already strange book. My apologies, again. To all the Jews, Christians, and Muslims I've just offended with all of that, but no explanation of ancient astronaut theory is complete without some poking around at the Abrahamic tradition. Since I'll be covering the story of the Bible's Old Testament in the next season, you'll have an opportunity to look at the earlier stories in it from the perspective of, it was all aliens, bruh. To finish off our multicultural explanation of how everybody's gods might have been aliens, we now come to Western Africa. The Dogon people from Mali have ancient traditions that the Sirius star system had three stars in it. In 1970, Sirius B, the second star in the system, was photographed. The Dogon have a tradition celebrating the orbit of Sirius B with the largest star, Sirius A. They know all of this because their friends from the Sirius system, called the Nomo, told them so a long time ago. The Dogon seemed to be pretty clear that these creatures were from a mostly ocean planet orbiting the middle-sized star in the Sirius system. These creatures were supposedly fish people, like mermaids, which is pretty weird. 
The third star that the Dogon say is in Sirius hasn't been proven, but two French astronomers in 1995 found anomalies that would suggest that there may be a third dead star in the Sirius system. If a third star is proven one day, that's one more point for the Dogon. They also had knowledge that Saturn had rings around it and that the Earth's moon was a barren rock. The moon part could be a lucky guess, though. The moon does look pretty barren from Earth. Anyway, Sirius A is the brightest star in the sky, but its practically invisible partner Sirius B is a somewhat odd thing to focus your cultural traditions on. Sirius B is a white dwarf star now, meaning it exploded at some point and almost definitely can't support life, but it could have been unexploded in human memory. If it were exploding at some point in human memory, and a bunch of friendly fish people lived around it, they might have been looking for a new home. The planet Earth, which is mostly ocean and conveniently close, would be a pretty obvious first choice. I'll give a quick mention that the Sirius star system comes up a lot in ancient lore and the alignments of megalithic structures and all that kind of thing. Across the planet, from American native tribes to insane buildings on Malta, people really had a thing for that star but it might just be because it's the brightest one in the sky. Now I'm going to do a lightning round of things from ancient stories that sound a lot like advanced technology. In the Vedas from India, they tell of vehicles called Vimanas, described as fiery chariots of the gods or mechanical birds. They are such an on-the-nose description of a flying saucer that it sounds like it almost has to have been made up by some science fiction nerd. If they were made up, though, it wasn't by someone who watched too much Star Trek, because these are mentioned in detail many times in a sacred text from at least 6,000 years ago. Also, they figured out yoga, which does happen to perfectly note the position of the magnetic resonance points of the human body as chakras. Whoever figured that out knew what they were talking about. It doesn't mean aliens, but it's a weirdly advanced thing for an ancient practice to be completely right about. Then there's all these European gods that had the ability to fly and throw around lightning. Again, lots of chariots of fire are mentioned. The Ark of the Covenant made food, but if you touched it, you'd die horribly from something similar to radiation poisoning. While we're at it, Sodom and Gomorrah kind of sound like they were wiped off the map by nuclear weapons, complete with brimstone, which is described a lot like radioactive ash. Dragons are a weirdly common story on ancient Earth, whatever that means, which I will rant about in a following episode. Stories of dragons from Europe feature very mean creatures that steal livestock and hoard gold. Stories of dragons from China show a softer side, where they help humanity in many ways, like helping the ancient Chinese survive floods. Then there are stories of dragons from Central America, which, okay, technically they're feathered serpents, but either way they flew around and helped humans start civilization. In every ancient story of dragons, they are extremely wise and they tend to really like gold. It's not too crazy that a flying machine with lasers turned into a fire-breathing dragon when the story is being told by people whose only machines are animals. Art from every place and time on Earth depicts things that look like flying saucers and stereotypical aliens from time to time. It's strangely common, really. The Renaissance painting called The Madonna with Saint Giovannio is a personal favorite of mine. Then there's all these crazy megalithic structures all over the planet that we still couldn't possibly build with modern technology. I will describe them in detail in the next episode, but this is the last time that I'm going to mention that they totally could have been made by aliens. They also totally could have been made by humans, with advanced technology that we no longer have. While that's not even half of the ancient stories that could be interpreted as aliens from around the world, I think I've made my point. And that's the thing. 
I still have no idea if this story is true at all. After a couple days of research to make this episode, though, I'm a bit more convinced. I suppose that's the moral of this story, that whether you believe God created the heavens and the earth in seven days, 6,027 years ago, or that aliens made humans as a slave race in the ancient past, it's all basically a question of faith. My spiritual beliefs coexist pretty well with both aliens and most religions, because I'm basically a hippie nature worshiper, so maybe it's a little easy for me to give all of these strange stories a chance, with a pinch of salt. It's a pretty common worldview these days that there are no gods, no magic, and perhaps no meaning to the universe. This belief often assumes that we have measured almost everything that matters, and our modern science has a pretty accurate understanding of everything that has happened. This is also a belief of faith, however, just as flawed and incomplete as its adherents would say religion is. We all believe in something, even if, or especially if, we believe in nothing. There must be an absolute truth to the deep questions of the universe, where we came from and whether something above us cares about us, but good luck proving it. The past can't be seen, well, not yet anyway, and the future is unwritten. All we can prove is what we do with the time we are given. It doesn't matter what you believe. I just hope it makes you live well and do good, whatever that means. So whether you believe God created us in his image, science evolved us to sentience, or aliens engineered us to break rocks, or some combination of all three, it's worth reflecting how awesome it is that we do exist. We might be part of the plan, or a cosmic accident, but we all have a chance to make that a good thing. Thanks for listening, fellow humans. In the next episode, we take a tour around the world exploring some of the most mysterious structures from our ancient past, which make us wonder, how and why did they build that? What were these people on? And can I have some? In the next episode, where I will resist the urge to mention aliens at all, we take a look at the age of megalithic architecture 